To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot or cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. And so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these hard words which are given to your church so that she might know that you have a higher purpose for her than just to kind of grovel around in this world. We pray that you would illumine the page and illumine our heart and our mind that we may understand. And then, Lord, move in us by your spirit that we may absorb and obey not because we're going to earn your favor, but because you love us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Each of these letters has begun with a self-identification that Christ has given his church. And all those self-identifications have served to um, explain something of who Christ is in relationship to that church and who he is in relationship to his whole church, his church throughout the ages. And so it begins again, this last letter begins with that self-identification. What I hope to do next week is to take a look at the glory of Christ in his self-identification in all of his churches toward us. What does that actually mean for us? But let's, let's work through this letter. This letter, to me, is the most troubling, heartbreaking letter of the seven. This is, this is the worst of the bunch. This, this church is in the most dire situation, and they don't even know it. They're in the most dire situation, and they don't even know it. What does Christ say about himself here? To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. 
This word amen, we use it at the end of a sentence uh, or the end of a prayer. Sometimes we use it to punctuate something that someone has said to where we agree with it. Okay, Amen, the word really means truly. Jesus used it a couple of times when he was uh, speaking of himself among the people of Israel, when he would say, truly, truly, he was punctuating what it was he was communicating, because it is the last word. It's the final word, and that's what he's saying about himself. He's the final word. In all of our in all of the things that we face as individuals and as a church, the final word is Christ himself. He's the amen. Sometimes we think the final word is stability. Sometimes we think the final word is contentment and peace. No, the final word is Christ. He is the first and the last. He's the first word we need. Our souls long for it and hunger for it. We need to hear word of him. And the last word, that is, he is the last word. He's the amen in any search, any church situation. It also means that his word is true without exception. His word is true without exception. It's through this that he exercises his final authority, which is why we're told at the end of Revelation, if anybody adds to the words of this book, to him will be added the plagues that are written of in here. Because Christ is the final word. So we see him, first of all, speaking to his church. What he says, there's nothing to be added to it. This is it. He's it. He also describes himself as the faithful and true witness. What that means is that Christ, whatever Christ observes and what he testifies is accurate and true. If he speaks to you about something that you, an attitude you carry around in your heart, that's a faithful and true testimony from him. And that needs to be given heed. He says um, in John chapter 3, verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. John 5.24, truly, truly, he says, still referring to this amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then John 14.12, truly, truly, he says, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Christ is the faithful and true witness. He speaks to us of what is reality, which is why the psalmist says, search me, O God, and try me. Examine my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me, and then lead me in the way of everlasting. Because ultimately, it's everlasting life with Christ. That's the end point. That is... That is the place at the end of the journey, at the, end of the, at the end of the road, where we walk then with Christ the rest of our eternity. He is the faithful and true witness, and he wants us to participate in what he is. <clears throat> now, that's meant just not for individuals, but for a church. A church together needs to be seeking Christ. A church 
together needs to be seeking the final word. The last thing that he describes himself is the beginning of God's creation. Probably a better way to describe this is the origin of God's creation. The creation came through Christ. He built it. He is the one that put the cosmos in place. But Christ is also the one who put the church in place. And because of that, he knows what it needs He says, basically with this, I know how the universe works and I know what makes it work right. And therefore, as the origin of God's creation, I know what it needs. So what Christ sees in his church is true. What Christ observes and challenges in his church is faithful. And what Christ says we need is spoken from the vantage point of one who know, who knows how his church is supposed to work. The way that the inventor of the automobile knew exactly what was needed to make the thing work and work right. So he identifies himself this way, and it's especially important with this church because of the nature of the rebuke that he gives the Laodiceans. Listen to this. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We'll talk about why this is the case. But basically, it's like having a bottle of water sit on the front seat of your car as the sun warms the bottle of water up. And when you come in, you want something refreshing, so you grab that bottle of water and you go to drink it, and it's just warm water. And your reaction is, yuck. What does that do for me? That's how Christ is viewing this church. Yuck. I'm going to spit you out. These poor Laodiceans think that they're okay, and Christ, is dis- he says, you're distasteful. You're distasteful, and, and I don't want any part of it. Well, why are they distasteful? Yes, they have become lukewarm, but the reasons for that are what's most troubling. Verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. What? Can you imagine a church looking at Christ and saying, I need nothing. I don't need anything. Who are we kidding? Can we really say at any point in our lives, I need nothing? We don't need grace today. We don't need mercy today. This is the source of true half-heartedness. True half-heartedness, it's it's like this. uh, A husband is at home and he's watching a football game and his wife comes in from, I don't know, an afternoon with the girls doing some shopping. She walks in and says, hi, honey, I'm home. And his reaction is, meh. 
What does that say about her? Or vice versa. She's watching, I don't know, what? The Home Channel Network? Soap opera? Maybe she's watching The Voice. He comes home after a little bit of time with the guys, and he's, it's been good time because he's just really in love with his wife. He says, hi, hon, I'm home, I love you. And the response is, me. That's what Laodicea is doing. Jesus has died for you. Jesus shed his grace on you. Jesus has mercy on you. He loves you. And the church goes, meh. What is wrong with a church like that? At what point does a church, the body of Christ, a body of people supposedly bought with the blood of Christ, not need Christ? How pitiful the church that doesn't need Christ. How pitiful the church that doesn't need Christ who gives the church definition and purpose. What happened? What happened? Well, I made it. I'm there. I'm exactly what I need to be. I've got a great building. I've got all my resources. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm prosperous. I'm rich. I've, I've got acceptance with the world. And the salt has lost its saltiness. What heartbreaking arrogance. I need nothing. God forbid that we ever get to that point. God forbid that we forget that today we need grace. Today we need mercy. Today we need the tenderness and the love of Jesus. May our hearts never, ever reach the point where we say, me. Can we really say, I don't need Christ's grace? I don't need Christ's strength? I don't need Christ's wisdom? I don't need Christ's blood. I don't need Christ's life. I don't need Christ's spirit. I don't need Christ's resurrection. Little wonder why James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It should not scare us if our church faces struggles and trials and tribulation because it forces us to face the fact, nose to nose, that we need our God. We need our Savior. We need his Spirit. We need him to rebuke us. We need him to lead us. We need him to hug us. We need him to love us. We need him. And the Laodiceans got to the point where they said, Meh. 
God forbid we ever get to that point. So Christ describes the real situation to them. I realize, and most of you, I think in, your, in the version we have in the bulletin, there's commas, but you have to hear this the way it's written in the Greek. You are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Those ands are important because it's not like, well, you know, these are just different descriptors of your situation. No, those are not different descriptors. The situation in this church is desperate. There are layers upon layers upon layers of spiritual need, and they can't even see it. They can't even see it. They don't have eyes to see. It's not just that they're wretched. They're wretched and pitiable. And it's not just that they're wretched and pitiable. They're wretched and pitiable and poor. And it's not just that. They're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind. And they're not just that. They're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. You want to hear the real tragic comment about Laodicea? Verse 20. This is the real tragic comment about Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in, and I will sup with him and he with me. Where's Jesus? He's outside. That's how much we don't need him. He's outside. Any wonder why this church is poor and pitiable and naked? Any wonder why this church is wretched and blind? Christ is outside. Like, for heaven's sake, we just don't need Jesus in this place. He makes us uncomfortable, and he just tells us the truth. He's the faithful and true witness. No, no way. We want him out of here. We want, we, want it, we want it our way. Me. We want it our way. Laodicea, in one of my favorite phrases, is a train wreck. You've got to ask the question, is it really a church? Christ is outside, tapping on the door. Let me in so that we can have fellowship. This is a church which has excluded Christ. They've left him on the outside. Christ who saves. Christ who keeps. Christ who blesses. But in this final sad commentary, in the words that Jesus says, is the loftiest of hopes. Hear it again as we read it. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, 
I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. You know what the glorious hope here is? With all of this rejection, with all of this, I'm self-satisfied with being adopted by the world. The world loves me. I feel great. With all of that worthlessness and nakedness and blindness, the Lord Jesus Christ has not given up. He loves his church. He loves his church. Christ has not rejected them. He hasn't said, "Eh, you know what, I'm out of here. I don't really need this. He hasn't walked away. He hasn't given up. He hasn't stopped loving them. How far do you think you can run to get away from Jesus? If you go to the other side of the sea, he's there. If you go on the other side of the galaxy, he's there. If you go on the other side of the universe, he's there. You want to pick a different universe? According to quantum physics, pick a different universe. He's there. His love is unswerving. Unswerving. How could we even respond to that by going, meh? And that's where Laodicea was. May God pour his spirit out upon us in such heaviness and in such a deluge that we are stirred to a vigorous life for him. That's because he loves us. He lovingly appeals to them. This is actually a picture of the Old Testament all over again. You know, when the northern tribes abandoned the covenant and said, what part do we have in David? We, we don't have any part in David. God sent one prophet after another prophet after another prophet after another prophet and said, I love you. I'll forgive you. I'm with, come, on, come back. Come back. Repent from all of this nonsense. Come back, and I will receive you. 250 years. 250 years. And even then, when God swept them out of the land to spank them, he called them back to himself. Our God holds his church with a jealous love. Our God holds Princeville Presbyterian with a jealous love. You're not... You're not here for no reason. He loves this church. He loves the gospel in this church. He loves the proclamation of truth in this church. And therefore, this is a church that is worthy to look to, I mean, made worthy by God's grace, to look to the Lord and to ask for an outpouring of his spirit and abundant fruitfulness. The Lord is long-suffering. He loves his people faithfully. He loves us faithfully. He calls his people back to himself. He's ready to receive them, just as the father is ready to receive the prodigal son. How far do you think you can run? God continually calls you back. Turn to him. Won't you turn to him? Won't you run back to him and say, Father, You're the only one who's really loved me in all of life. The Lord remains faithful, and such faithful love has expectations. Such faithful love works in us a longing to be more faithful. 
That's what it does. And that's what we can rejoice in. The Lord says, I will come in and I will sup with you and you will sup with me. Done. I'm not going to sit here and remind you of all the things that you've done wrong. Let's have fellowship. That's what my life and death was about. That's what the table's about. Let's have fellowship. Because I love you with an everlasting, eternal love. From before the foundation of the world, I have loved you. And so here's the faithfulness that's expected of this church. The faithfulness is... Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Gold refined by fire. It is a life which has been consecrated by the Lord and is being used by the Lord for his glory. Malachi 3.3 tells us that the Lord will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. The Lord, in his love, purges you, refines you, makes you like gold. That's the gold that you're buying with no money, because it's all of grace. And he says, you're now, you're now that treasure that I want. You're that refined, beautiful, wealthy treasure that I have been looking for. This is the value of having been tested, tried, and found faithful, being refined and purged from sin. White garments, Isaiah 61 tells us, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the, tender, with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The Lord looks at our tattered clothes, our filthy garments, and he says, that's, that's not fitting for my children. Remove the tattered garments of sin and folly, and what's put on your shoulders are the garments of Christ's righteousness. Not a garment that you own, but a garment which is given to you by grace. So that when God looks at you in Christ, he sees the garment of righteousness, garment of salvation. The white garments are those of righteousness and holiness which only the Lord can bestow. And the salve is an eye poultice. 